Anyway, we're lucky enough to have Professor Joseph Pierce back with us again tonight. He was with us back in the beginning of December when he talked about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. When he actually, um, it was a fabulous talk, which if you didn't hear, I recommend going back and listening to either on the St. Mary's website or on iTunes. Um, but anyway, he actually, at this, during that talk, he was able to do um, something that Padre Pio was famous for, and that was by location, and that he was here and on EWTN at the exact same time. I don't know how that was possible. But anyway, um, Professor Pierce is an English-born writer who lives now in Simpsonville. Um, he's also um, a writer in residence with Thomas More College up in New Hampshire, and also teaches um, up there in the humanities. He used to have a similar um, position down with Ave Maria in Florida. And anyway, he's written, I believe, 16 or 17 different books. Last time, he didn't even remember how many. And um, on a multitude of different topics, um, in particular, literary converts is his, um, and biography is, but he also has books of verse. Um, I mean, and they're all fabulous. I've read almost all of them and highly recommend them, which he will be selling at the end of the talk and more than happy to sign. So stick around. Um, and get your copy of whatever you like. So anyway, now I'm going to turn over to Professor Pierce and welcome him back. Good evening. evening. It's good to be back. I like speaking at St. Mary's because it means I can leave home at 5.30 and be home in time for bed. And I have to go anywhere near an airport. It's wonderful. So it's good to be here. And this evening, we're going to be going to talk about the Catholicism of the Hobbit. Um, could I begin uh, by asking for a show of hands, all of, if you have read The Hobbit, please raise your hands. OK. If you've seen the movie, please raise your hands. OK. If you've read The Lord of the Rings, please raise your hands. Okay, if you've seen the movie The Lord of the Rings, please raise your hands. Okay, if you've done all four, raise your hands. All right, so basically we've got a um, pretty knowledgeable audience here, so um, I'd have to make sure that I know what I'm talking about. Before we get to the Catholicism of the Hobbit, I want to just begin uh, by talking about The Lord of the Rings very briefly for maybe about five or ten minutes, and then we'll get into The Hobbit. Um, because the, although The Hobbit was written first, um, n- knowing what Tolkien did with The Lord of the Rings and knowing what Tolkien said about The Lord of the Rings is a good introduction into The Hobbit. What Tolkien said, and I'm quoting him word for word here about The Lord of the Rings, The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Okay, so Lord of the Rings is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. The words of the author of the work itself, and let's not forget that little subclause in there, of course. In other words, it should really be no surprise to anyone. Also, on another occasion, in a, um, one of his letters, he wrote about a scale of significance with regard to his relationship as author and The Lord of the Rings as work. And he talked about the insignificant factors, the more significant factors, and the really significant factors. Amongst the more significant factors 
was, he said, his love of languages, which is clearly a major ingredient in The Lord of the Rings. Above that, he says, is the fact that I was born in the Shire in a pre-mechanical age, which I could say more about, but I'm going to resist the temptation to do. Uh, although there is going to be a Q&A session, so if, there, if uh, I raise questions I don't answer, that's the time to raise the question again and I'll answer them. Um, but then at the very top of this scale of significance, the more important, the really significant factors at the very top of the scale is, and I'm quoting Tolkien word for word here, um, the fact that I am a Christian, which can be deduced from my stories, and in fact, a Roman Catholic. All right, so there we have uh, Tolkien's own words about the Lord of the Rings being a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. I do give a talk uh, very regularly and frequently on the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings, and it's a different talk, and there just isn't time to give two talks. I can bilocate, but I can't give two talks at once. That's the problem. Um, so, um, so basically, the, the, main, the main arguments for the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings would have to wait for another occasion, or... First of the commercial breaks in the talk, uh, you can obviously buy the talks or the series or the various uh, things I've done uh, showing the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings that's available at the back there. But I'm just going to just give one fact about the Lord of the Rings, which I think is the key that unlocks the rest of the work. And the rest of it follows on from that, and we could say much more. And that's the date on which the ring is destroyed. Now, we have a knowledgeable audience here, so someone's going to tell me, please put your hand up if you know on what date the ring was destroyed. I knew you'd know. I'm going to give someone else a chance, and you know as well. Yeah. March the 25th. March the 25th. Thank you. So several people knew the answer. Now, when I give this talk at secular universities, or the Catholicism, well, I don't call it the Catholicism of the Lord of the Rings at a secular university. I call it the unlocking the Lord of the Rings so that we can get the non-believers in. <laughs> and when you mention March the 25th, the non-believers look completely and utterly perplexed and bemused and befuddled, as they do about many things in life. <laughs> what on earth is March the 25th? So, you know, at secular universities, one thing they do know is the facts of life. So you say, well, what happened nine months after March the 25th? Okay. April, May, June, July, August. December the 25th. Santa Claus comes down the chimney. <laughs> All right. Even in secular universities, they know that it's Christmas and that's the date on which Jesus was born. Well, nine months before that is the Feast of the Annunciation. And that date is our, um, more important than Christmas. In fact, don't think that I'm a heretic, but my one complaint against the Catholic Church, that's a dangerous thing to say, a Catholic <laughs> parish, isn't it? My one complaint against the Catholic Church is that March the 25th, the Feast of Annunciation, is not a holy day of obligation, because clearly it should be. Because it's, life begins at conception, not at birth. The word became, became flesh on March the 25th, not on December the 25th. God became man on March the 25th, not on December the 25th. So the Feast of Annunciation is hugely important. And what many people don't know, even Catholics, is that the date of the crucifixion 
was also March the 25th. Of course, we celebrate Good Friday as a movable feast. Um, but the actual event of the crucifixion happened on one particular date in history. And that date was March the 25th. That's according to, to, to the tradition of the church, which would be passed down from the witnesses. And I think we can be fairly sure that the Blessed Virgin Mary remembered the date on which her son was crucified. I can remember the date on which my father died, and it was in far less dramatic circumstances. And I'm sure that St. John remembered the date on which Christ was crucified, and that the other witnesses, the other Marys, um, and indeed all the apostles that ran away, we still know what day it happened. So it passed down from that time, the date of the crucifixion. It's the same date as the Annunciation. And of course, this makes March the 25th the most important date by far in the Christian calendar. This is the date on which Tolkien has the ring destroyed. Now what the Incarnation, the Annunciation, and the Crucifixion, the death and later resurrection of God, Christ, uh, have, when taken together, is the power to redeem us from sin. And especially from original sin. The original sin is, as theologians will tell you, the one sin to rule them all and in the darkness bind them. And the one sin and the one ring are destroyed on the same day which makes the power of the ring synonymous with sin itself. The carrying of the ring is like the carrying of the cross. The wearing of the ring is the committing of sin. When we put the ring on, it's an act of sin. If we put the ring on habitually, we become addicted to our sin. In freely choosing evil, we lose our freedom by becoming addicts addict to the sin itself, enslaved by sin. And one of the most brilliant portraits of the human soul anywhere in world literature is the picture of Gollum. The shriveling of the personhood once the person has become addicted to sin, to the ring, when they want nothing but the ring, when the ring is all that they care for, when they will betray everyone and everything in order to possess it. Well, when you get to that situation, you don't possess it. It possesses you. One of the great paradoxes of life at the heart of the Lord of the Rings is that the thing possessed possesses the possessor. And then from that, we could talk about all sorts of other characters, but that's the other talk. I'm going to put my Lord of the Rings notes to one side now. Move on to The Hobbit. The Hobbit was written before The Lord of the Rings, published in 1937. The Lord of the Rings was originally commissioned as a follow-up to The Hobbit. 
but it sort of grew up and grew out of control and grew in size and became its own thing. The Hobbit is a children's book, but I'm currently reading The Chronicles of Narnia with our five-year-old daughter. Um, and anybody will know that great uh, literature, even if it's purportedly for children, is for children of all ages. And as we know from the gospel, unless we can see through the eyes of a child, we will not get to the kingdom of heaven. You have to remain childlike without falling into the childishness of sin. So The Hobbit is a children's book, but it has many, many profound meanings in it. And we could have guessed as much. It's as fundamentally religious and Catholic, of course, as The Lord of the Rings. And we shouldn't be surprised by this, because in an academic lecture that Tolkien gave, which was later published uh, under the title of On Fairy Stories, he said that fairy stories hold up a mirror to man. In other words, they show us ourselves. Now, if something shows us ourselves, it's not escapist, it's not fantasy, it's reality, it's realism. So in The Hobbit, we are shown ourselves. But there's a question that's, that begs itself. Because if it holds up a mirror to man, which it does, the obvious question is, what is man? And that's a question we need to know and ask and answer before we're going to be able to understand The Hobbit. Because for Tolkien, we are not merely homo sapiens. Now, let's make one thing clear here. The word homo sapiens, by the way, the term homo sapiens, was a name given to us by us. All right? It's a product of the Enlightenment. Never trust any body who claims that he is the enlightened one and that everybody else is in the Dark Ages. The arrogance of the Enlightenment is betrayed by the name it gives itself. We are enlightened. And the whole history of humanity up to us has been ignorance and bigotry and darkness. Well, it's the Enlightenment that calls us Homo sapiens. The Enlightenment also calls itself the Age of Reason. And again, the arrogance of it as if no one had the power of reason before they came along just a few hundred years ago. We can forget about Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas and the great philosophers and the great theologians and the great writers because they were not living in the age of reason. They were living in the Dark Ages, before the Enlightenment of the Age of Reason. So it's these arrogant people that look down upon the whole of history and the whole of humanity that call us Homo sapiens. And their ignorance, actually, is illustrated by the very name itself. Because the word sapiens means wise. And the Enlightenment doesn't mean wise, and it's Homo sapiens, it means clever. And there's a huge difference between cleverness and wisdom. In fact, I forgot to bring a copy of my book up, but I'll get it in a moment when I need it. Tolkien in The Hobbit has a great deal to say about the difference between cleverness and wisdom. 
Because what, what the, the modern man means by homo sapiens is we're basically a little bit smarter than the monkeys. <laughs> Nothing to do with wisdom. It's to do with the fact that we walk on, on two legs, not four, and we, we're a little bit more developed than the chimpanzee. It's nothing to do with wisdom, nothing to do with sapiens, the Latin for wisdom. But for a Christian, we're not part of this rationalist understanding of humanity. And nor do we think that we are homo sapiens, because wisdom is something that you have to learn and acquire through life. None of us are born wise. Wisdom is not what defines us as people. Some of us may acquire it. Many of us won't. But it isn't something that unites us as being a characteristic of all of us. So we're not homo sapiens. What a Christian believes we are, and now we begin to see where the Hobbit comes in, we are homo viator. We're man on a journey. Travelling man. The whole purpose of our life, and it's the only purpose worth worrying about, is to get to heaven. And that's a quest, and a dangerous and perilous one, with dragons on the way. And there's no guarantee we'll get there. And if we don't act virtuously, we won't get there. So the, the, the mirror to man that's being held up in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings is a mirror of homo viator, man on a journey. And now we begin to see how Bilbo's journey in The Hobbit can be seen as a mirror of our journey in life. So I want to now talk about three key ingredients of The Hobbit. I'm going to sum just summarize them now and then I'll go into a bit more detail. In one sense, Bilbo's journey is a rite of passage from ignorance to wisdom. He doesn't begin as Homo sapiens, but perhaps he is Homo sapiens or, or Hobbit sapiens, whatever the appropriate Latin phrase for a, a wise Hobbit would be. And a rite of passage from sin to virtue. The second uh, key uh, meaning of the Hobbit can be found in what might be termed a mystical meditation on divine providence and the relationship between grace and free will. And the third is a moral commentary on Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, so let's now look at the story. The story begins, of course, with Bilbo being very reluctant to go on an adventure. Adventures are horrible, inconvenient, and perhaps dangerous things. Why would he leave the comfort of his hobbit hole to go on an adventure? Chesterton said that an adventure is merely an inconvenience properly conceived. Bilbo does not have that Chestertonian spirit at the beginning of the book. It's an inconvenience to be avoided at all costs. He doesn't want to go on an adventure. At the beginning of the book, he's a creature of comfort, addicted to the creature comforts. 
He has everything he wants around him. He doesn't need to go anywhere else. Of course, Gandalf says that the reason he should go on the adventure is it will be profitable to him. And of course, Gandalf, who is wise, does not mean profit purely in terms of gold. That he has something to gain from the adventure, which transcends mere treasure. Another aspect of The Hobbit is the recurrence of the word luck. What is luck in The Hobbit? Is it blind fortune? Is it like throwing the dice or tossing a coin? Are we at the mercy of blind and merciless fate or fortune? Or does luck mean something else? Well, the word luck, I mentioned once giving this talk, I think it was at a homeschooling conference in Massachusetts, if I remember correctly. Um, but the word luck and lucky is mentioned an awful lot in The Hobbit. And I said, I'm not quite yet enough of a Tolkien nerd to go through The Hobbit and count how many times the word luck and lucky came up in The Hobbit. Thankfully, there were a couple of a family of Tolkien nerds in the audience. <laughs> and that night they went home and they duly went through The Hobbit and next day they gave me this very useful chart. <laughs> I won't read the whole thing to you, but I'll give you a, a feel. It's headed a luck, in inverted commas, and its derivatives mentioned in The Hobbit. And there's a column, chapter, page, paragraph, line the speaker who says it, and the term used. So, for instance, in case you didn't know, in chapter 1, page 24, paragraph 1, line 4, Thorin says, luckily. <laughs> and go down then chapter 9. I'm talking about random here. Chapter 9, page 186, paragraph 1, line 4, the narrator says, luckily. So, anyway, the term used, luckily, luck, luckily, lucky, lucky, luck, luckily, luck, lucky, luck, 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 luck. <laughs> So is it, and it, the, the, the summary at the bottom is luck is mentioned in The Hobbit at least 36 times. This is not an exhaustive list. However, they went as thorough as they should be. But we tried to find as much as we could. The edition of The Hobbit used was printed by Delray Books, Inc. in 2012. All page numbers, etc. correspond to that printing. And I have the names of the people concerned, but I think their Tolkien nerdishness deserves to be kept a secret. But we've got the point. You don't have to take my general word for it that luck and lucky is used an awful lot. We now know it's used at least, it mentioned at least 36 times by all sorts of people. But what is luck in The Hobbit? Is it merely blind chance? Well, let's take a couple of examples. Perhaps the, one of the most famous scenes in The Hobbit is the famous uh, riddling game, the game of riddles between... Frodo and, um, and Gollum in the depths of the Misty Mountains there. And it's a high-stakes riddling game, far higher stakes than any poker game you're going to see on TV, because the loser gets eaten. I don't think even Las Vegas has stooped to those levels yet. That would certainly make the poker game interesting. So, of course... Frodo's a little bit nervous. 
can't really afford to lose this game. It will be his last ever game of riddles. And eventually Gollum asks him a riddle and he can't, he can't think of the answer and he begins to panic. And Gollum, instead of showing the good cardinal virtue of patience, senses victory and senses his supper. And he climbs out of the boat, puts his foot in the water, and in so doing, scares a fish that jumps out of the water and lands on Bilbo's lap. That's what's called a clue, and a very lucky one, because then Bilbo shouts, fish! The answer's fish! Which indeed it was. That's lucky. But see, the luck is connected to freedom of choice and free will and human action and the consequences of that. Because if Gollum had shown the patience, if Gollum had behaved virtuously and stayed in his boat and had stepped into the water, the fish wouldn't have leapt out, Bilbo would not have got the clue, and he would have been supper. And this point, by the way, Tolkien's pretty um, explicit about this point in The Lord of the Rings. Theoden says, oft doth evil will evil mar. And because Tolkien wants us to get the point, a couple of pages later, Gandalf says, often does evil hurt itself. Now, sometimes Tolkien wants us to get a point. He sort of hammers it home. He's not all that subtle sometimes. In other words, evil is self-destructive. Sin is self-destructive. And here we see how Gollum is defeated on the very brink of victory by his own sinfulness. The same thing happens later. He asks Bilbo another question. And this time Bilbo again doesn't know the answer and he is panicking. And his panic is brought to levels of hysteria by the sound of Gollum again not showing patience or temperance and advancing on Bilbo to kill him. And Bilbo in his panic wants to shout out, give me more time. But because he's petrified, his mouth is dry and he can't formulate a whole sentence. So he blurts out, time, which is the answer to the riddle. <laughs> but again, it's, it is Gollum's evil action that defeats Gollum from, from, from victory and saves uh, Bilbo. Of course, that's the via negativa, if you like. That's the, the reverse side of it. Throughout The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, we also see how virtuous action has positive consequences. All right, the difference between cleverness and wisdom. One moment, please. In The Hobbit, Um, we are told by the narrator 
that goblins are cruel, wicked, and bad-hearted, and that they make no beautiful things, but many clever ones. And he continues, it is not unlikely that they invented some of the machines that have since troubled the world, especially the ingenious devices for killing large numbers of people at once, for wheels and engines and explosions always delighted them, and also not working with their own hands more than they could help. But in those days and those wild parts, they had not advanced, as it is called, so far. Now, the interesting thing about that, of course, apart from the fact that we see that orcs are clever, evil people can be clever, Adolf Hitler was clever, Joseph Stalin was clever. It's a huge difference between cleverness and wisdom. But the in interesting thing there is the orcs actually, if you notice, step out of the story. It's not unlikely, we're told, that they invented some of the machines in our world particularly ingenious devices for killing large numbers of people at once. Which is where, you know, the phrase more, more recently used for that is weapons of mass destruction. That we don't have to look very far to find an orc. They're in our world, as are many, many golems. This is showing a mirror to man, remember. Right, the other parallels between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings is Gandalf's role. In both, both books, as you know, Gandalf disappears at a crucial moment and comes back again later. And this is really a case of Gandalf flying the nest so that his, so that his little nestlings, his young ones, can learn to fly. So Gandalf flees at just the right moment. Um, Telling them, of course, whatever you do, do not leave the narrow path. Obvious analogy with the gospel. Stick to the narrow path. In fact, the words emphasized so much again by Tolkien in the words of Gandalf, they're in capital letters. Cannot be stressed enough. But of course they don't. They get a little bit hungry and they leave the narrow path and get themselves into all sorts of trouble. Another parallel between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings is the return of the king. Thorin Oakenshield, of course, is the true king under the mountain who returns to the Lonely Mountain to claim his own, to reclaim his kingdom and its treasure. Because no one is going to pretend that uh, Thorin Oakenshield is as noble as Aragorn. There are indeed good and bad kings. But the point is that the true king's return is important in both books. There are songs sung about it in both books. And the true king has a right to his return. I could say much more about that. When I give the Lord of the Rings talk, I talk about the Arthurian dimension, the once and future king, King Arthur, the Jacobite dimension, the exiled Catholic king who's exiled from England, who's the, um, the king over the water for which... We await the return. All of this, and of course, and most importantly, particularly in Aragorn's kingship, uh, a shadow or foreshadowing of the kingship of Christ and the second coming. Another key ingredient of the Hobbit is summed up, actually, by some words from Sam in The Lord of the Rings. 
Above all shadows rides the sun. And in the Lord, in the Lord of the Rings, that's shown in, in, in several ways. My favourite, which I'm going to take a little Lord of the Rings digression, um, because I think this really sums it up. Sam and Frodo are heading towards Mordor, um, and they come to the crossroads. And at the crossroads, there's a statue of the king. The statue of the king, of an old ancient king. The statue of the king is a symbol of civilization. Civilization being understood as uh, humanity uh, being creative and turning towards the light and, uh, and creativity it gets from God. Human society living virtuously, shall we say, and in wisdom. But this statue has been desecrated and destroyed and vandalized by a horde of orcs. The head of the statue has been hewn off, decapitated. In the place of the head is a roughly hewn, ugly stone placed on the shoulders of the king with the red eye of Sauron daubed on it crudely. And there's orcish graffiti all over the statue. Now, we don't want to know what orcs write in their graffiti. That is one good reason for being uh, thankful that we can't speak orcish. But this work of beauty, this work of civilization has been destroyed. And it seems to be a symbol of the triumph of evil. And yet the very last light of the sun, breaking through the trees, illumines the head of the king, which had been rolled away several yards. And it's as if the sun, although it's not talked about explicitly in the book, it's as if the sun itself, the light of the sun, has placed a halo of sanctity and blessing around the head of the king. But more than that, once the light has shone on the head of the king, they notice stone crop growing around the king's head. Stone crop, as you may know, tiny little golden flowers that grow on rock. And more than that, there's a, there's a, there's a creeping plant crawls along the ground towards the head of the king winds itself around the king with beautiful white flowers. And Frodo says, see Sam, the king has a crown again. They cannot conquer forever. And here we see supernature, God, miraculously blessing nature and showing how nature is united with supernature, with God, in the war against evil. It's a miracle of grace that they see in that vision. But more than that, I could say much more about Tolkien's philosophy of creativity. Uh, it's not the place for it. But Tolkien believed that at the top of the hierarchy of creation is the creator, God. Below that is creation, that which is made directly by God, from nothing, ex nihilo. Below that is sub-creation, things made by us, using the creative gifts that God has given to us. And sub-creation can be to the glory of God or for the use of man, both of which are good, 
There's nothing wrong with building a house to stop yourself dying of the cold or putting some clothes on. But there's a certain way in which God actually magnifies man's sub-creation so that it even perfects God's own creation. Yes, we can't make anything as beautiful as a sunset or uh, one of God's creatures, animals. But let's take, for instance, the statue in the Lord of the Rings here. Let's assume it was made from marble. The marble had been under the ground for millions of years. No one's seeing it. Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, it's made by God. But no one sees it. And then by human sub-creative gifts, we quarry that piece of stone, that piece of marble. We give it to a gifted sculptor who turns it into a beautiful statue of a king and raises it to the glory of God. And then the forces of evil come along and attempt to destroy it. And here God himself, with his creation, is blessing that work of sub-creation. And Tolkien's understanding of evil is profoundly Christian. Evil has no being of its own. It's merely the absence of the good. All goodness comes from God. All light comes from God, which is why evil is always described in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit as being the shadow, the land of shadow, or Sauron as the dark lord. Paul has a profoundly Christian understanding of evil. Well, let's now move on to dragons as we move towards the end of the talk. I want to make sure I leave time for questions. Now, dragons are not merely large animals like a dinosaur. You know, if a tiger were to come into this room now, we'd be a little bit scared, quite rightly. But we'd be scared because it could kill us. It would be a danger to our flesh. But a dragon, on the other hand, is demonic. Um, when we see depictions of St. Michael, St. Michael is slaying the dragon or the serpent. We see St. George slaying the dragon. And dragons eat people. But they particularly like maidens. Because it's not human flesh that they crave. It's the pollution of the human spirit. The devouring is a deflowering. They want to corrupt. So we're not surprised that Smaug has a problem. And Smaug, of course, is possessed by his possessions. He's a slave to his possessions. He's not happy. He daren't leave his lair in case someone steals a trinket from his hoard of tens of thousands of trinkets, none of which he can use. But all of which, according to Tolkien, he knows the market value of. Again, another example of, you know, the, 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 the dragon leaping out of the story. We can't really imagine um, Smaug reading the Wall Street Journal for the latest market prices. But Tolkien's drawing parallels here between the dragon and certain real people in the real world. He also says that, that 
the anger of dragons are having something stolen from them. It's a bit like people we know that may own something for years and forget that they own it. Yet at the moment they lose it, they're in a, an apoplexy of rage. So there are dragons in our world. So Smaug has the dragon sickness. By the way, the, the, the whole light thing, you mentioned the, the link to the Hobbit. I want to do that very quickly. It's a ray or a finger of sunlight that points to the key to the door in the Lonely Mountain. As it was prophesied would be the case. That the sun itself, the finger of God, touching the door will, will show where the door is. They couldn't find it by their own powers. They need that supernatural intervention. And also, Smaug is destroyed because in his pride, he rolls over to show uh, Bilbo his wonderful armour of gold that's impenetrable. Nobody can possibly destroy me. But he has an Achilles heel. It's not actually an Achilles heel, it's an Achilles heart. Because there's a hole in the armour right above his heart somewhat providentially, or luckily, if you prefer. <laughs> but what happens is when he's coming, flying over in his rage to destroy Lake Town, it's the light of the moon, which, uh, which again is a reflection of the light of the sun, which again is a reflection of the light of God, that points towards the dragon, and this beautiful gold and silver, all created by God, all beautiful, reflects back the beauty of the light. But there's a black hole above Smaug's heart. Darkness, the absence of light, evil. And it's in that black hole that the arrow finds itself and Smaug is destroyed. Above all shadows rides the sun and the moon and the god of sun and moon. Okay, just to finish then, the dragon sickness. Clearly Smaug has the dragon sickness. But who else has the dragon sickness? Yes. Thorin Oakenshield, thank you. Thorin Oakenshield certainly has the dragon sickness. He becomes possessed by his possessions, so much so that he almost kills Bilbo, his friend. He gets his love for his friend and his neighbours, Makes enemies of nearly everybody because he's possessed by his possessions. He has the dragon sickness. Thank you. Thorin Oakenshield. Anyone else? Sorry? Well, Gollum actually has the dragon sickness much more in the, in the Lord of the Rings than he does in The Hobbit. I mean, he does have it, but, but if you don't really see the power of the ring in The Hobbit, it's sort of that ring becomes evident in the later work. Um, you know, the, the dragon sickness fulfills the same function in The Hobbit that the ring does in The Lord of the Rings. And Gollum... It's not really a central figure. He's all, yeah. The mayor of Lake Town. Thank you very much. The mayor of Lake Town also has the dragon sickness. What he does, of course, is steal the treasure from his own people uh, and goes off into the desert and dies of starvation because you can't eat gold. And again, Tolkien actually tells us that. He reminds us of these basic facts, these Midas lessons. All right, anybody else has the dragon sickness? Yeah. The King of Mirkwood, yes, the King of Mirkwood has the dragon sickness. He also raises an army pretty quickly to go and get his share of the treasure. Anyone else? Doesn't Bilbo lose 
Bilbo briefly. Okay, thank you. I was waiting for the word Bilbo. Before we get to Bilbo, then let's talk about the other... We mustn't forget, in the, in the role of honour of those who have the dragon sickness, the wonderful sackful Bagginses. <laughs> because when they come into the story at the end, of course, they are um, selling off of all of Bilbo's possessions and measuring his hobbit hole to move in. <laughs> and they're very disappointed to find that he's returned. Yes, but we mustn't forget... Bilbo Baggins. Bilbo Baggins has the dragon sickness at the beginning of the story. He's possessed by his possessions. And in fact, the actual parallel is pretty obvious. Bilbo and the dragon both live under a hill. Bilbo's address is under hill. The dragon, of course, lives under the Lonely Mountain. The only difference between the hill that Bilbo lives under and the hill that Smaug lives under is one of scale. And yes, there is a very bad pun in there, if you think about it. <laughs> no, Frodo doesn't have scales. But the, but the point is that uh, he's possessed in his own way, as in his hobbit fashion, by his possessions. The purpose of the journey is to overcome the dragon sickness, to be healed from the dragon sickness, to grow in virtue, so he's no longer addicted to the creature comforts, to the selfishness, which is the root of all evil. So the journey, like our journey in life, again, Bilbo's journey parallels our journey, is that we have to embrace suffering, embrace the adventure of life, including the dangers and the suffering, to lay down our lives for our friends, which Bilbo does on several occasions, growing in virtue every time in the process, in order to overcome our addiction to sin. So, how does The Hobbit end? Well, what's happening when Bilbo returns home? By the way, on the question of luck, right towards the end, the last page or so of the book, on the return journey home, Gandalf says to Bilbo, you don't think all of your adventures were managed by mere luck, do you? Because, of course, they weren't. And Bilbo, in his humility, smiles and says, thank goodness. Indeed, thank goodness. Who is goodness? God is goodness. But so what's happening? When, when Bilbo returns home, what's actually physically happening in the story? What's literally happening when Bilbo returns home? Right, the sackful Bagginses are selling all of his possessions, except for the ones they want to keep for themselves, of course. Um, and why are they selling off all his possessions? Anyone? Not, well, that, what, why do they think they're allowed to sell his possessions? Because they think he's dead. And I'm always reminded, one of your great American wits, Mark Twain, allegedly read his own epitaph in the newspaper. <laughs> I, I want to do that. That's one of my ambitions in life, is to read my own epitaph in the newspaper. <laughs> and he wrote to the editor saying, Dear Sir, reports of my death are greatly exaggerated. <laughs> and I can imagine Bilbo returning home and saying exactly the same thing, much to the annoyance of the sackful baggers. In fact, we're told... That, they, that most of them are very upset that Bilbo's 
returned from the dead. <laughs> and some of them refuse to accept he's really alive, even though they see him um, in the flesh. And again, there's an analogy there to the words of the gospel. Now, if they will not believe the miracles that they're seeing, says Christ, they will not believe even if one returned from the dead, one rose from the dead. Bilbo rises from the dead, he comes back, he's resurrected, and they won't believe he's alive because they'd rather have his possessions than him. So what we see at the end here is that Bilbo starts with dragon sickness through a life of virtue and suffering in laying down his life for, for his friends. No greater love has any man, says Christ. He dies to himself. And in dying to himself, he's resurrected. Ultimately, the Hobbit encapsulates one of the great paradoxes of the gospel. That we have to lose our life in order to find it. We must die in order to live. We must die in order to love. Let's, let's, I'm not going to go off on a long tangent here. But the modern world has got love all wrong. Love is not a feeling. No, I love you because you make me feel good. I mean, you don't make me feel good anymore. I'll find someone else to love. Love is not a feeling. Love is an action. Ultimately, love is a commandment. Love the Lord thy God. Love thy neighbor. Love thine enemy. However hard that might be. However it may not feel, make you feel good. In order to love, we have to give ourselves to the other. We have to die to ourselves. So we must die in order to live. We must die in order to love. In The Hobbit, Bilbo learns how to love. He learns how to live. And the most important thing of all, he learns how to live happily ever after. Thank you so much. Okay, maybe five or ten minutes for questions if you have them. Are there any questions? <coughs> I stunned you all into silence. Sorry? The question I skipped at the beginning. I can't remember what that was now. And if no one else can remember it either, then it can't have been that important. About being born in the Shire and the land of... Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Well, Tolkien, in that scale of significance about the, the, the importance of his relationship as author to The Lord of the Rings, um, had, again, uh, the more important factors was his love of languages, and the most important was the fact he's a Catholic and a Christian, which can be deduced from his stories. Um, but just below that, between the more important and the, really, the more significant and the really significant, is uh, the fact that... Uh, I was born in the Shire in a pre-mechanical age. Now, the point is, Tolkien, that's not true. Now, I'm not, Tolkien's not a liar, but it's not true. Because Tolkien was born in 1892, and anybody who knows anything about history knows that the Industrial Revolution started about 150 years earlier than that. Uh, he was born in South Africa, and quite clearly the Shire is meant to be Anglo-Saxon, rustic England, so he wasn't born in the Shire. He wasn't born in the pre-mechanical age. But what he's getting at 
um, and I experienced something similar to this in my, in my own childhood, so I can really relate to it, is that when, when uh, after um, his father died when he was very young, and then his mother became a Catholic, and, when, when, and then had both her sons received into the church at the same time as uh, uh, sort of cradle converts, if you like, um, that after that, they, they, the, the family were plunged into penury because the little bit of help they were getting, of course, the, the father dying unexpectedly when she has two young boys, threw them into poverty, but they got some help from their families, her family and her husband's family. But when she became a Catholic, they, that, that help was ended, cut off. So the family were basically thrown into penury. Um, Tolkien was convinced that, and wrote on two occasions, that his mother was a martyr for the Catholic faith. Um, but because of that poverty, they lived for a while in Birmingham. Birmingham in England was the second, still is, I think, the second largest city in England after London. But it was a village 150 years earlier. It was, uh, became a city because of the Industrial Revolution. They lived in the middle of the city uh, with a, uh, a railway going out the back, which in those days, of course, was steam, so uh, smoke and noise. And there were factory chimneys in sight of the house. So it was noisy and smelly and polluted. That is not the Shire in a pre-mechanical age. But Tolkien also lived for a while in his childhood in a little village in Worcestershire called Serhold, which had a, a pond he could play in, a trees he could climb, uh, an old-fashioned mill that, that, uh, that animated his imagination. This was the Shire. And the Shire was more powerful because he knew Mordor. He saw the belching factories and the noise and the smell and the pollution and the big city where you couldn't see the countryside, where you couldn't see wildlife. But he also experienced the village and the wildlife. And it was the contrast between the two which makes the experience of the Shire as a child so powerful. But strictly speaking, the phrase is not accurate. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Who are the orcs? As a matter of interest, who are the orcs? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I mean, it was widely believed when the Lord of the Rings was published. It was at the time of the Cold War, and of course, the Second World War recently ha recently happened. Fascism was in the recent past. Communism is still very much around, and of course. George Orwell had recently published uh, 1984, An Animal Farm. Uh, C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength also sort of touched upon these issues of totalitarianism. So many people thought that Lord of the Rings was also uh, addressing these issues. And it's easily done uh, because, uh, you know, uh, Sauron, uh, the Red Eye, uh, Saruman, the White Hand... Uh, which, which, after the fall of Isengard, has red on its fingertips. Um, uh, so you could... You, and, and, and then, of course, uh, the Shire is England. Um, uh, but uh, Tolkien would have, would have spurned such reductionism. The, the, he said that the Lord of the Rings... He, said, he was asked if the, Lord of, if the Lord of the Rings was an allegory of atomic power. And he, he wrote, replied to the correspondent and said, no, but it is an allegory of power, um, particularly power usurped for domination. 
Um, so there is, a, there is that political aspect to it. But he, but he says in the same letter, but more important than that, it's an allegory of death and immortality, which takes the whole thing up beyond politics to the level of philosophy and theology, which is why Tolkien says The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work. Because at its deepest level, it works on the level of theology, not on the level of politics. But that doesn't mean there's not political applicability. Tolkien talked about applicability. And, of course, the work can be applied in all sorts of ways. Was there another hand up? Okay, yeah. Of course, of course, which is why you're not doing uh, Tolkien justice if you're saying that The Lord of the Rings is merely a political allegory of, of, uh, of contemporary times. Tolkien was rooted, rooted in, uh, in language and in the history of language. He spoke Old English. He translated Beowulf. Um, uh, you know, he, 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 he spoke Old Norse, Greek, Latin. Um, so he, he was rooted linguistically. He was also rooted historically as a Catholic. Um, and he's also a traditionalist. And what, one thing about tradition is it slows things down healthily. Now, you could talk about political philosophy in terms of a human society being a car, now, that progress is the gas pedal, the, uh, the steering wheel is wisdom, and tradition is the brakes. And we live in a society now that's thrown away the steering wheel and refuses to use the brakes, <laughs> and they wonder why we're heading for disaster. Landscape with Dragons, Michael O'Brien's book. It's a very big topic, and not one that, quite frankly, I can do justice to this evening. Um, it's much safer to remain on safe ground, uh, because we do live in a landscape with dragons. Uh, but what we can't do is, and this is the mistake in the other direction, we, can, we, we, we should obviously avoid allowing our children to read uh, poisonous stuff. Uh, most poisonous stuff is not actually stuff you read, it's stuff you see. So I would, I would actually first encourage people just to just get rid of the television, period. Um, that's the first step you can do if you want to, if you want to navigate your children through the landscape with dragons. Um, reading is less perilous, but it can also be perilous. But the other, the other error the other extreme of error is to try to shield your children so much that you are trying to hide from them the fact that dragons exist. Um, you know, fairy stories always have dragons and evil witches and treachery and poison because the real world has dragons and evil witches and treachery and poison. And so we need, we, our, our children do have to be introduced to the reality of, of evil as well as, of course, of the supremacy of virtue. Um, from the earliest age. So we can't avoid the landscape with dragons in itself. Um, we have to be careful that, that, that we're not allowing our children to be devoured by dragons because of uh, the things we introduce them to. But I think most of those are visual uh, and not actually things that you read for the most part. 
Okay, you, we have five seconds to ask another question, or I'm going to... Okay, thanks very much, and if you can hang around and buy some books, that would be great. <laughs> Thank you.